Welcome to OU Live. My name is Rabbi David Pardo. I'm your host. Tonight we're actually doing a different kind of episode. Um, we like to keep things light here and inspiring and uplifting, uh, but it's also important that a three-day Chag is coming up, a three-day Yom Tov, at least uh, here in Chul, until we're fully redeemed and uh, make Ali appropriately. Three days. Um, I've learned that people kind of think about uh, this time, you know, the self-isolation uh, in the bucket that they fall into. So I am uh, uh, little kids. So I really think about isolation in, in terms of working from home and having little kids run around and keeping them in school and entertained and fed. And those are the kinds of memes that my friends are sharing with me. But I also know that people are experiencing this as uh, young marrieds with no kids, as older with the kids out of the house, maybe as seniors and thinking about where the kids and grandkids are this Yom Tov, and also um, about being alone. People who are single um, are living by themselves, maybe with a roommate, maybe not. Um, maybe making, maybe they've moved in with their parents, maybe they haven't, maybe they can't. Um, and I want to spend an episode thinking about people in our community, and not necessarily our I live in Fairlawn, um, you know, with a lot of people who are like me. I mean our community in the broader sense, uh, people for whom this three-day Yom Tov, for me, the, the scariness is thinking of keeping um, <laughs> everyone fed and entertained um, and making meaningful sarm and staying sane, but only in the colloquial sense. Um, thinking about people for whom this three-day Yom Tov is, um, is scary, is frightening, and for whom it really poses an actual risk of death uh, and suicide, and how we can be more mindful as um, people who um, are a little luckier, um, who are not struggling with the same sort of uh, uh, demons, whether it's uh, actual clinical depression or just loneliness, um, how we can be more mindful and more aware of what's going on. So we have an incredible lineup tonight, um, talk about this issue from uh, very different perspectives. Maybe there's only one perspective, really, if you think about it. Our first guest is Dr. Michelle Shane, who is the assistant director of the OU's Communal Center for Research. Center for Communal Research. I'm a bad person. Dr. Shane, formerly of Brandeis, of the Cohen Center. Um, <laughs> and uh, Doc, how are you doing? I'm doing well, how are you? I'm great. Um, I'm great. So we, uh, we spoke earlier and um, you, you are up to, the center really has been up to um, some interesting research lately on, um, on that, this entire demographic. So could you tell us more about what the study is? Sure, absolutely. So there's a lot of research showing that more and better social relationships improve our mental health and lower our risk of disease and even death, and that social isolation has the opposite effect. And this obviously becomes really important right now with the closure of schools, the closure of non-essential businesses and all the stay at home orders in states all around the country. So what I'd really like to do with you tonight is explore what we know about living alone and loneliness in the Jewish community from a research perspective. And one of the ways we're gonna do that is we're going to give you a sneak peek, a first look at data from the OU Center's Center for Communal Researchers first study, um, which we are tentatively calling Great Expectations. 
um, which uh, involves both uh, interviews and surveys of uh, single men and women in the Orthodox community. I, you know, I, Khatati Bashati, um, what is the OU Center for Communal Research? I didn't realize that cool studies are coming out of, of your office. What is, what is that? Yeah, so the OU, a little over a year ago, uh, started a new department. We're calling ourselves the Center for Communal Research, and we have two missions. The first is to really support evidence-informed decision-making and policy-making in the Jewish community by using the tools of social science uh, to understand who our community is, where they are, and what they need. Um, and the second is to evaluate OU programs and to see what we're doing very well and where we can improve to serve the community more. And this study is a study of singles and what was the, what was the point? What were you trying Single to Orthodox for? Jews. We were trying to understand a couple of things. The main one was what does the marriage market look like, right? Who are the men and women who are looking for partners? What do they want? Uh, what is the experience of seeking partners like? And how does the experience of being single affect the relationship with the Jewish community, with Hashem, and with their Judaism more broadly? And what did you find out? Or not the whole thing? Okay. <laughs> so should we Hit, start? Oh, yeah, yeah. Share screen. Okay, let's do it. All right, so I wanna get started with some population numbers. As of 2013, there were about 5.3 million Jewish adults living in the United States. And of those about 10%, about 550,000 were Orthodox. 20% of non-Orthodox Jews live alone. That's 979,000 people roughly. 10% of Orthodox Jews live alone that's another 53,000 people. Now that gap between Orthodox and non-Orthodox Jews, 10% versus 20% of people living alone, is the most pronounced in the age group of the 18 to 29 year olds, which is likely a result of Orthodox Jews getting married younger and non-Orthodox Jews staying single for longer. This information we know from the Pew Research Center's 2013 survey of U.S. Jews, um, and it's corroborated by Brandeis University's American Jewish Population Project. Unfortunately, there are too few Orthodox Jews in the Pew sample to say very much about the Orthodox population with certainty. And that's kind of a general problem in researching the Orthodox community, that our population is so small relative to the U.S. population as a whole that it's hard to get reliable information. And that is part of what prompted the formation of the Center for Communal Research and this study. So our first major study was a study of the single Orthodox men and women matchmakers um, and the marriage market in the Orthodox community in America. Our working title is Great Expectations. The study included in-depth interviews with single men and women and matchmakers and community leaders as well as a survey of singles. So we surveyed users of eight dating websites and organizations that serve Orthodox Jews between February 5th and March 6th. So we were lucky enough to get out of the field before the coronavirus epidemic really started to change daily life for most people in the United States. We had over 2,200 responses, a 12% response rate, which is incredible. We are so grateful for the um, 
feedback and the enthusiasm of the Orthodox men and women who participated in the study. So what I'm gonna give you now is a first kind of public peek at some of the data we've collected. And I wanna use it to illustrate some of the experiences of people who are living alone at this time. So first of all, I want to um, note that obviously not all single Orthodox men and women live alone, right? Of those who completed mm -hmm. our survey, 29% were actually living alone with most of the rest uh, living with their parents or living with roommates. Um, I want to explore before I go further into the quantitative data, um, some of the feelings of loneliness in the single Orthodox population and how those feelings um, were expressed by the respondents themselves. I'm gonna bring you some verbatim quotes from a question, an open-ended question at the end of the survey. What do you want Jewish communal policymakers to know about your experiences as a single Orthodox Jewish adult? So here we're asking people to tell us what do you want the community to hear? And here are some of the responses we got about loneliness. Singles are pressured and pitied and we're always told we're not enough. There isn't enough chizuk out there, it can be a very lonely time. A lot more people than you think are struggling with loneliness and isolation. It's lonely, aggravating, and feels hopeless often when you're actually in it. But many singles are so sad from the constant beatdowns their self-esteem has taken that they might not feel comfortable asking for help and talking about it more. That this is one of the most trying and embarrassing times in our life. We lose a sense of purpose and don't really know why we're on this planet. There's no way to explain the thousands of times we're discounted, rejected, overlooked while trying to find our own purpose and meaning in life. The combination is terrible and really can destroy anyone. That's really heartbreaking. It really was. And I thought it was really important to start with some of the voices before we looked at some of these charts. And now I wanna move on to some of the quantitative data. So we asked people how often they feel that they lack companionship, that they're left out, and that they're isolated from others. Remember, all of this data was collected before the coronavirus outbreak. So this is sort of a baseline, right? We're not talking about what people are feeling at this moment. And even then, we saw pretty high levels of loneliness among singles, 44% saying that they often feel like they lack companionship. So what I did was I took these three questions and I combined them into a loneliness score that goes from zero to six. So if you said hardly ever or never to all three of these questions, then you would be a zero on that scale. And if you said often to all of the questions, you would be a six, right? And everybody else sort of spreads out between those two ends of the spectrum. And I'm gonna use that index to figure out the characteristics of the people who are the loneliest. My hypothesis going into this analysis was that the strongest predictor of feeling lonely would be living alone. And that's why I chose this topic for this time during the coronavirus outbreak. I expected that it was the people who didn't share their physical homes with someone else who were gonna feel the loneliest. Turns out, actually, I was wrong. So in a regression model, living alone was actually not a significant predictor of feeling lonely. The strongest predictors of feeling lonely were age and sex. So feelings of loneliness seem to increase from the early 20s through the early 40s and then drop again a little bit. And single men are lonelier than single women. 
Thinking about single men and single women, something else that was interesting was that single men are also much more likely than single women to strongly agree that their lives would be fuller and happier if they were married rather than single. And while most people disagree, most single people disagree that a loveless marriage is better than no marriage, men were more likely than women to agree with that statement. 10% of men agreed that they would rather be in a loveless marriage than in no marriage at all, compared to only 4% of the women. I know some of you have probably heard of the Framingham Heart Study. It's a longitudinal study that started in 1948 with about 5,000 people who were living in Framingham, Mass. And researchers have followed them and their children and their grandchildren ever since. It's an outstanding project and most of what we know about heart disease actually comes from this study. That's why it's called the Framingham Heart Study. And one really interesting finding from the children of that original cohort is that unmarried men had a 54% higher risk of coronary heart disease or death over a 10-year period compared to married men, whereas for women, marital status didn't seem to have any effect at all. We also know from this study and from others that the suicide rate for men is much higher than for women and for unmarried men is much higher than for married men. And I brought you the national numbers from 2005 on the right. There is tons and tons more general research that shows that the negative health impact of social isolation is larger for men than for women. So, and the question is, yeah. I mean, if I, just because we're running low on time, um, yep. so I just wanted to, I, so I, I thought that was um, really fascinating in that you would have expected, I don't know what you would have expected, but um, the people that we should be most worried about are people living alone, which is not everybody, so we can't take that for granted, um, and young men are at most at risk for loneliness, and I'm going to assume loneliness is correlating with everything else that we're worried about. Absolutely. You know, it seems that men have a harder time creating and sustaining emotionally intimate relationships apart from having a spouse or a romantic partner, whereas women are generally able to get more of their emotional needs met by their female friends. That's, that's, uh, that's staggering. What, um, what should people know? Um, what do you like them to, uh, we should do the rest of the study. Um, another time, what should people take away from this presentation? I wanna leave you with three thoughts. So the first one is social connection, emotional intimacy. These things are essential to our physical and our mental well-being, right? Men who live alone, who aren't married, they struggle more with that social isolation than women in the same situation, than women who live alone or aren't married. So please, I'm asking everybody who's watching this tonight, do what you can to connect with the members of your community who are living alone right now, and especially with the men who don't have partners, right? Who might be having more trouble, even than some of the women who have partners, reaching out and asking for that help. That was one, was, was there three? Well, those were sort of. Uh, oh, there was the the pack. I'm sorry. With <laughs> a little bit of a package, but can I can I show you a photo? I uh, I love I love pictures. Done with. Okay. So 
So as part of our study, we ran a uh, photo contest. We invited single Orthodox Jews to uh, submit an original photo that reflected their lives as a single Orthodox Jew. This was the winning submission uh, chosen by our three judges. And the photographer himself titled the photo and wrote the caption. He called it Eshet Chayel I Find. And he wrote, saying Eshet Chayel at dinner, joined only by his reflection, the table is sparsely adorned, married friends own fancy things, kiddush cups, challah covers, candlesticks. Being single, you make do with tinfoil candlesticks and napkin challah covers. And I thought that the image really beautifully captured that reality and is also a nice image for us to carry in our mind, thinking about Pesach, thinking about Seder, thinking about what our table looks like, what the tables of others in our community might look like right now and what we can do to make people feel less alone. That's an important message. And thank you for sharing with us, Dr. Shane. And uh, God willing, we'll have you on another time. Thank you. Looking forward. Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach. You are on OU Live. My name is Rabbi David Pardo. We're doing a special episode on uh, vulnerable populations and the upcoming three-day Chag. Um, OU Live is a nightly program, and we're always looking for feedback. OU Live at OU.org. Our next guest is Rabbi Yoni Rosenzweig. Rabbi Rosenzweig, how are you? Hi, how are you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm great. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, as good as anyone else, I think. <laughs> how are you? Baruch Hashem. Can't complain. So, um, Rosenbach, you are, um, you're, you're the rabbi of a community in Beit Shemesh. You are, um, you're a teacher, um, uh, you teach in a couple, I think, different yeshivot. And, um, but also when um, I was trying to think of rabbis that I know who speak uh, eloquently and frequently on the topic of mental health, I immediately thought of you. Um, I want my first question to you is, is why did that happen <laughs> to me? Meaning, how did you become this, uh, how did you become this um, outspoken advocate for mental health and halacha? Um, in short, because I know this is not the main point here, uh, about three years ago, I mean, as a community rabbi, I've received questions over the years, uh, but about three years ago, I realized that when people ask me questions about mental health, there is nowhere to turn, meaning you can always ask another rabbi, but in terms of written material, um, I'm not saying I'm the first one to have ever written on the subject, but there's an article here, an article there, uh, there's really not anything that's been collected um, or clearly put together. And uh, therefore, I started uh, learning uh, once a week with a friend of mine, a psychiatrist, um, about these topics. I started, you know, reading the DSM and other uh, books that have to do with uh, mental health just to understand uh, the world that we're talking about and what we're discussing, and at the same time learning on my own the halachics of it from the sugyas and the gemara through the different opinions in order to gain an understanding uh, of what this world uh, looks like and what's still missing. And I found that there is a lot missing, you know, in terms of, um, you know, answers, halachic, specifically in halacha, halachic responses and, um, uh, you know, solutions for things that people go through. And so I started writing uh, a book on the subject. That was three years ago, and I finished, I mean, I haven't published, but I finished more or less writing it uh, about four to five months ago. And then after I finished writing my own understandings, 
I started uh, going around to the post gym to start asking them, uh, you know, what they know, what they understand. And I found that uh, many of them were very open to hear about, uh, you know, the problems that I was raising and trying to find solutions. Although at the same time, many of them were still relatively unaware of how to deal with this topic, meaning I found that it was new to them as well. Uh, and that there, they, we, there's uh, a real dearth, meaning, I mean, I'm, I'm Weiss has written um, a, a lot on, on things like OCD and various mental health issues. I know uh, Yitzchak Zilberstein was one of the first really to write Shuvot. Um, is that is that changing? Is that I mean, this is a conversation a lot, I think, in in the rabbinate about awareness around mental health issues. But in in a sock way, besides Rav Usher and Rav Yitzchak Silberstein, is that right? So you're absolutely right. Rav Yitzchak Silberstein, I think, has written the most that I'm aware of, and I searched far and wide, you know, to find anything that was written on this uh, subject. I think out of every, out of everyone that I know of, I don't know if he's the one who's dealt with it the most. He's dealt with it in writing. The most, okay, mm. uh, you know, that's for sure. Okay, Ravash Ravice. I mean, I I was zochet to sit with him uh, between ten and fifteen times, uh, you know, about issues of of mental health. And yes, he's written about OCD, uh, but and it's not to take away from Ravash Ravice, uh, of course, but uh, so have many. In other words, there are certain topics in mental health that are relatively, let's call them popular. Um, so OCD is one of them. Uh, it's relatively early that uh, the post can discuss OCD, but there are others that are popular, so to speak, once again, in quotation marks, but that are popular in, in let's call them in, uh, in, in our um, public discussions, but halakhically there's very little, like depression, you know, which is something that is known, yeah, and something that people know about, but how should depression be uh, discussed or dealt with in terms of keeping Shabbos, in terms of all look around, you know, you won't find much, you know, if any that is written, you know, on the subject. I asked many posts and I got some very interesting answers uh, about these topics. And after I felt, you know, after two, two and a half years that I felt like I was really swimming in the, in the material, I also felt comfortable to start posting on Facebook about these issues and to start discussing them. And I found that there was a tremendous response from the community. Um, and that's why I think why people know that I deal with it is because I'm one of the only ones that's, you know, as a rabbi at least, that writes about it and writes about the halachic uh, ramifications and implications uh, of these things. And I'm not blaming other rabbis, I'm really not, because I understand why they feel that the field is very, very vague and they can't, how could they say anything clear about this field? You know, that, that's the problem here uh, for rabbinim and that's why they don't deal with it so much. And I can tell you from experience, when you when you ask uh, any um, any therapist any question, right? <laughs> so the first answer they always give you is, "Call me Krele Gufo." Every case is different. Yeah. So in other words, for a Rav who always wants to define things in very very clear terms, it's very difficult to work with that. You know, what am I supposed to do that if every case is different? Am I supposed to actually go case by case? So the answer is, to some extent, yes. You are supposed to go case by case. But the challenge of writing the book that I have written. Um, is was indeed to try and create a new language for halacha to deal with mental health issues. So back to depression, because depression, I guess, is not is attractive to write about, but is also very shchiach. Um, I really wonder um, how many people. Um, it, it, part of it, I, I you know, layman's perspective, not the rabbi part, the psychology part, but yeah. the line between I'm very sad 
and I'm colloquially depressed and I'm clinically depressed, short of an actual clinical diagnosis is, is very blurry, I think, for a lot of people. So, um, right. and I'm also just really, I, I, I read, a, I, I print out a lot of stuff before Shabbat. Um, I read this uh, blog post by someone named Ashra Lavi who, who wrote that we're going to have, he's, he's scared that he's going to open his uh, computer after Shabbat and see how many people committed suicide, chasa chalila. Um, it, so it's very real. There are very real implications. Um, when we talk about pikuach nefesh, it's, it's real. On, on the other hand, how, do you, how are people who don't know that they're depressed just feel very sad? Um, how are they supposed to know um, listen, if, if I like, you know, cut my hand off by accident, I know, okay, now I'm in a Pikuach Nefesh zone, but that's yeah. physical. With emotional stuff and mental stuff, how am I supposed to know when I've crossed the line? And how am I supposed to know that for someone else, for, for a friend of mine? 100%. These things are very, very difficult to know. You're right. So obviously everything I'm going to say now is, you know, to try to give an idea of how I would tackle this. Okay. I don't want anyone to think that this is a you know, so like a, a clear, a clear cut to psak in one way or another. But of course. So uh, first of all, the question that you asked me is the question that Rav Weiss asked me the first time I raised it with him about the question of someone, you know, who is depressed. Can they listen to music on Shabbat? Can they listen? Can they write in the diary on Shabbat? Can they, um, you know, can they play music uh, like on a, on a, like on a, on a piano on Shabbat? Um, uh, you know, what, what can they do? Can they go, can they go on their phone on Shabbat? What can they? Uh, what is what is okay to do? And Rabbi Shabbat, you know, said to me, you know, it's not that I. This is how he said. It, he said, I, it's not that I don't believe that mental health is important, or that I don't believe that people are mentally ill. I believe that. I just don't know how to define it. You know, and that's what you said to me just now as well. You know, rightfully so. You know, what's the difference? Like, I woke up in the morning, I was a little bit sad. I was a little bit blue. So, like, you know, what's, what's, what's the deal? Like, you know, does that make me automatically sick? You know, the problem is that everything here is internal. There are no biological markers uh, that we can pinpoint directly to say, oh, this individual, you know, has such, such and such and such. And that's really the issue. And the Colmi Krele Gufa that I mentioned before is exactly, a, you know, symbolic of that. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's indicative of that. You know, that uh, we don't know. Every case is so different. So how could we really, really know? Okay, so let me let me start off. And once again, I'm gonna make this short because of the time constraints. I don't want to uh, be overbearing here. Uh, but the, uh, the, uh, the, the factors that we can definitely use are functional consequences, okay? And that's, that's a very important point, okay? If we see functional consequences, so the individual is depressed, what is it depressed? He, he, he's just feeling bad. Well, he can't get up, you know, out of bed for work. He can't go to, you know, simchas. He can't go to important things. He can't make his own breakfast. I mean, it doesn't have to be all these things, just some of these things. Meaning, are, is he functionally affected by the depression that he says he feels? So yes, the, the issue is internal, but it affects outwardly. Does it really matter whether the whether the external consequences are caused by something with biological markers, a physical disease, or by something that is mental. Either way, the person is deprived of certain uh, basic functions. And therefore, from that perspective, we can apply halachas of chol sheyesh, bo chol she'en bo sakana, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and try and see how we translate that into something practical. 
However, it is true, and this I'm going to talk more about the personal feeling of the individual. It is true that we can't always see that, and the person doesn't always feel that. The question, we also want to catch it before it happens, right? We want to make sure that the person uh, doesn't deteriorate to that stage. We don't want to only catch it at that stage. That's part of the challenge here that you mentioned about waking up the next morning after Chag and finding that people did such and such and such because the rabbis didn't allow, you know, to do so and so. And are we only allowing for someone who has been you know, like clinically diagnosed by a licensed psychiatrist, or are we saying to people, look, you know, you have to watch yourself, and if you know that you might deteriorate, you know, uh, you know, what do we do in terms of uh, those situations? And the elderly certainly are in that situation. And once again, I'm, I'm kind of like zooming through this, uh, you know, uh, considering the fact that, uh, right, the elderly are definitely in, in, even those who are not diagnosed yet with depression, uh, their morbidity uh, is certainly heightened. Uh, and why? Because what is, how is depression caused? Caused by isolation, which they are. Caused by lack of uh, mobility, which they are, even if not physically, but they cannot go anywhere. Caused by being faced with your own mortality. People on the news saying day in and day out how, you know, those people are they're gonna die if they get the coronavirus and this and this and that. Possibly friends or family, you know, who have already passed from the coronavirus. I mean, in those situations, who wouldn't be stressed? Who wouldn't be in a situation with a heightened possibility of, of, getting, of getting depression. So taking all that and coming to, the, to a conclusion, right? I would say, you know, people, the way to tell the difference between uh, whether you're depressed in a more significant way or whether you're just having a bad day or having the blues also has to do with how quickly you can uh, get control of yourself. Here's what we don't understand about depression. People uh, say, oh, just, just be happy. Just, you know, think, think of the bright side, you know, of life. Think about, about the good things in your life. It's not like that. See, it, just like a person, person who's really sick, uh, if it's a physical illness, it's not just going to be in their head, right? They can't just like make it go away. You, you, I have a fever. Uh, thinking that I don't is not going to help. It's the same thing with depression. A person who's depressed, it's not just, oh, just think positively. It's not like that. They can't make it go away. They can't control it. It's not something that they have uh, an ability to control without help, without external help, if it's medication or is it, it's therapy or whatever it is, but they do need the help in order to control whatever's going on inside their head. And that's a major difference. Anyone who's going through that knows that they're going through that. Sorry, I can't hear you. I muted myself. Practically, someone who... Um, let's say, listen, people who are watching the show who are starting to wake up to the fact that they might be more depressed than they realize, that, that's important. What about people who are watching the show and, uh, you know, you shouldn't be psychoanalyzing your friends or diagnosing your friends, it's not a good thing, but people who know that they have um, friends, loved ones who are depressed, um, what should their takeaway be? Who, who think that their friends are depressed? Friend, family, yeah. again, doesn't have to be uh, young, it could be old. Right. Right. You're right. I mean, these things definitely need to be, we need to be aware of them, right? That's, that's the problem. If there's a lack of awareness, there's a stigma. Also, people hide the fact that they are sick. They don't want to be, uh, you know, pitied in this way. It's like, oh, you're, you're depressed. You know, like people don't, don't treat those people the right way. We don't, we don't, there's a stigma within our communities, not just ours, not just uh, religion, in religion, but also outside of religious communities, you know, and therefore people are ashamed to admit uh, you know, that, uh, that they have this. Therefore, uh, they hide it and they don't tell anyone. So we have to be vigilant to see what's going on with the individual and to always be asking after them. Uh, we can't always diagnose, obviously. We can't know for sure. But we have to notice 
whether there's a significant deterioration and ask after the, after the individuals and show them that we're interested in them uh, and their problems. So that is significant in order for the person to come forward. Can I really give a, a clear indication for a person? Look, if they're, if they're really disinterested, disinterested in life, you know, in all, re, in all uh, regular functions, meaning there's a deterioration in terms of, like I said, getting out of bed, being interested in doing anything, um, uh, certainly if there's something suicidal going on without a doubt, but uh, I'm saying even before that, um, you know, if there's a general lack of interest in, uh, in anything that, that implies vitality, um, then I would say that, you know, we have a definite problem over here and, and one should be uh, hypervigilant, you know, for such an individual. Once again, you really can't diagnose and know for sure unless something significant has occurred that is functionally apparent. Otherwise, it'll, it's, just, it's just guessing. And maybe they are just having a bad day or even a bad week. You know, that could definitely occur. Like I said, in, in these days, um, like when, when people were talking about, you know, whether you should zoom in for Seder or not, you know, from before Chag, leave the zoom on and all that discussion. So, you know, what I was telling people was, I mean, the person that you know, who's isolated, who's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, have you seen a deterioration in their mood lately? Have you seen what's been going on with them? Is there something that, you know, specifically makes you, you know, worried, afraid, you know, that something is going on? Or are they generally upbeat in a good mood, you know, et cetera? They seem like they're doing more or less the same things. I mean, what, what is it? If there's something wrong there, if there's something that's happening over there, definitely, I would say there's something to be worried about. And maybe, yes, maybe zooming in for the Seder, you know, is the way to go. Otherwise, you know, not necessarily. People sometimes just have, you know, like, or they're okay, or they're okay. So you have to be vigilant. It's hard to give a clear, a clear guideline. Rosen's why where can people find you online? <laughs> um, I'm on Facebook. Or, or, or find the safer. Well, I haven't printed it yet, published it yet, but um, I'm, on, I'm on Facebook. And if you want my email, it's ravioni at Gmail. That's pretty easy. R-A-V-Y-O-N-I at gmail.com. So, you know, that's... Lucky more. that you got it soon enough. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with us. Besimcha. Thank you very much. On OU Live, my name is Rabbi David Pardo. We're doing a special segment on vulnerable populations and mental health and coping with what might be a very difficult time um, for those of us tuning in or those that we know. I'd like to introduce my next guest is Rabbi Elimelech Goldberg, um, known affectionately as Rabbi G, who is the founder of Kids Kicking Cancer. Um, Rabbi Goldberg. Delay. Goldberg, your screen is black.
see myself. So I hear you. Don't don't see you. Strange. It looks like I'm getting decent bandwidth. Let me move to my office. Okay. Maybe maybe the bandwidth is better. Are you sure that? Oh, there you go. That's you. That's weird. The video just kind of like. No, it was probably a bandwidth issue. I'm right. I just would have imagined like a frozen screen first before, you know, nothing and then something. It's a, it's a Zoom issue of uh, making sure that there's enough bandwidth. Yeah. Well, Zoom issue for Cloud, they've really uh, exploded overnight. Went from 10 million users to 200 million users. How, how's this? Very dapper, Rabbi. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Rabbi Goldberg, you are the founder of Kids Kicking Cancer. Um, can you tell us why and how? What is, what is Kids Kicking Cancer and why did you start it? Kids Kicking Cancer began 21 years ago, but the first inspiration for me was our, our daughter of blessed memory when I was a Rebbe for Yeshua University in Los Angeles. Our first child was diagnosed with leukemia at a time that it wasn't a very treatable children's illness that it is today. She was an amazing little hero at two years old. She could tell the docs at UCLA, no medication today, please, and tell the five-year-old kids in the clinic not to cry. A number of years after she passed away, I found myself directing Camp Simcha for the High Lifeline and uh, an extraordinary place. And I came upon a five-year-old child in the infirmary who was having his port access in his chest for his chemotherapy. I'm also a clinical assistant professor in pediatrics, so I teach the, the science side of this. In the old days, we used to teach in medical school that if a person is experiencing pain, there's a pain center in the brain. Today, we know it's not true. It's old neuromatrix, which means if they're angry, they're afraid, they're despondent, there's no purpose for what they're going through. The no exception, actual pain message goes up. So I walk in on this scene, this child is being held down. A nurse has a large syringe to plunge into his chest. It was so counterintuitive. He was screaming so loud. I just yelled, wait, and they all stopped. Even the kids stopped screaming and they looked at me. I didn't have a clue what I was going to say next. And I just tell the nurses, give me five minutes with this child. And they were happy to leave. The child looked at me like I was the governor. I just stayed his execution. And I approached this child and I said, no, I'm a black belt, which doesn't mean anything. To a little kid, it's a wow. He said, you want me to teach you some karate? He almost jumped off the table. And I explained to him, in the martial arts, you learn that pain is a message. You don't have to listen to. You can breathe in this amazing chi, this energy, this light from Hashem, this incredible power from God, and push out the pain. Watch me. And five minutes later, we're doing a simple Tai Chi breathing technique. 20 minutes later, they pulled the needle out. And he looked at the nurse and he said, did you do it yet? So we began with 10 kids at Children's Hospital of Michigan. And now we have a goal of reaching and lowering the pain of 1 million children by 2025. We're currently in 90 institutions in eight countries and growing. That's amazing. Um, so we're, we're now exploring um, adults looking at this three-day Yom Tov um, with uh, some trepidation, either because they're alone or because they're uh, depressed some way. 
um, and not knowing, you know, how they're going to cope with. So what are things that um, either people who are feeling that way right now and watching um, or people who know people who feel that way and are watching, what are the messages that they can learn from your children? Well, let me make a deal for your listeners and for your viewers. The three words that we use in Kids Kicking Cancer, and now we're dealing with children, all different pains all over the globe, is power, peace, purpose. That you can breathe in this light and push out pain, fear, and anger, lowering your stress. And we ask the kids, what's your purpose they out to teach the world? So we bring our kids to teach adults how to do this. And so literally we have heroin addicts who are learning from the children how to take control and use this breath to lower their stress. But there's a message of power, peace, purpose that really is so appropriate for this time of chelut, of freedom and liberation, because the ultimate liberation is from ourselves. And we have this ongoing stress and the challenges that those stress creates, realizing that there's a purpose to the moment. You know, there's a group called the optimists. They're like the lions, the Rotary Club. They're really a group called the optimists. Probably a group called the pessimists, those who are optimists with experience. But the optimists were making this great party for us. And one of our kids, an 11 year old boy named Bernard, he actually was a week before his 11th birthday. So he has his twin sister, Brittany, push him to the front. And there in his little wheelchair, he says in a loud voice, he asked for the microphone which they were kind enough to give to him. And a lot of it said, hi, my name is Bernard. And at that moment, there were about 400 people milling around the auditorium. They all stopped to look at this little kid in the wheelchair. Is I want to thank you for such a great party. And I want to teach you optimists what they teach us at Kids Kicking Cancer. And that is, no, no matter what you face in your life, you can breathe in this light and push out the darkness. And it pre proceeds to show them how to do our breath break. And then with a big smile on his face, he says, remember, no matter what you face in your life, you can breathe in the light and blow out the darkness. You and then they, gave, to... then they let me, I'm sorry. Then they gave me the microphone. I had to take a breath break myself because we all knew that Bernard's mom ran away when he was a baby. His dad died when he was eight years old. His uncle died when he was nine years old. And that was the year he was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor that was slowly stealing any movement from his body. And with the most beautiful smile on his face, he says to everyone there, no matter what you face in your life, you can breathe in the light and blow out the darkness. So when they finally gave me the microphone, I took a breath break myself. And I said to the optimist, I want you to understand that Bernard just defined optimism. But the definition of optimism is not that everything's going to be great. Optimism means that we can respond to everything in our lives with greatness. And this is the moment of optimism. This is the moment that we have a night, the night of Pesach, that's so dark, but it turns into almost like daylight. Shalom yom filo laila. The light, according to the Medrash, lit up as if we're in the middle of the day. Finding light in the course of darkness is a human goal. But when we realize that we're teachers, whether we're home by ourselves or the people around us, there's so much opportunity to teach, to be able to relate that we have found this light, that we can use this light. 
that we can ultimately feel this connection to Hashem. There was a young lady who called me. Unfortunately, she's on hyperalimentation for many years. She can't eat or drink. And this year, she cannot be at anybody's Seder. She's very immunocompromised. She can't even go down the block to be by a parent's Seder. What does she do? So after discussing the halachas of what she does Friday night for Kiddush and the davening, because she can't make Kiddush because she can't drink, etc., etc., I said to her, I just want you to know that you're not alone. Because in the middle of your Seder, I want you to look across the table and see that the Shechina sat there. And the Divine Presence will say to you, you know what? I'm very lonely. Because for thousands of years, I've been without my children in the Beis Hamikdash. And yes, they gather from year to year with all of their friends and they say sparkling words of Torah and beautiful songs, but it's not the same. I miss them. I'm very lonely. And by that point, I said to my young friend, I said, I want you to realize that when it's time to open up the door for Eliyahu and Navi, send the Shechina to open up the door. But listen carefully, because this year he's going to tell Eliyahu, Shona Hazot Biyushalayim, I'm tired of being lonely without my children. And I told my young friend, when you begin to sing the songs at the end of the Seder, your voice will be joined with the voice of the Shechina for the Shira Chadasho because we're never alone. But I said to her, I'm you. I'm jealous, because your Seder will probably be the most holiest Seder in the world. It'll be you and the Shechina, and your Seder will bring Mashiach. I'm you. So these are the words of power, peace, purpose, to be able to bring in this energy, to push out pain, fear, anger, stress, and to know that every moment we have a purpose and people are watching, people will see how those individuals sat by themselves at a Seder with the Shechina Sashem, that they went through this darkness with light. Your children are watching. Even if you're not on Zoom, even if you're not connected, you're connected. Because ultimately, when you live that light, you'll share it to the world around you. No one will be alone this Seder, but neither will the Shechina. Can you teach us how to do a breathing power break? Sure. We have a trademark breath break, B-R-A-K-E, which even though it's trademarked, if you breathe, you don't have to pay us. But the idea of the breath is the following. Every time we have stress, and there's the constant stress of all of the news and all of the pandemic and all of the fears and all of the angst, which is certainly appropriate for the time. Very understandable. <coughs> There's a constant world of stress that's around us, but it preceded the coronavirus. Those stressors will always make our body tight. And we have the adrenal gland that shoots out these glucocorticoids, these stress chemicals. It's the number one cofactor in morbidity and mortality. It makes you sick, but don't worry about that because it'll kill you. So we live in this world of stress. But the one good thing about stress is that it'll make your muscles tight. Now that doesn't sound so good because they say there are two types of Americans, those who have back pain and those who will have back pain. 
However, if we become sensitive, if we become observant of ourselves and identify my neck, shoulders, chest, head, stomach, think about your special spot of stress. When that becomes tight and you're not lifting weights, then the reason that you're tight is because of your stress chemicals. I, I give these seminars to busy executives all over the world. Tell them when you pick up the phone and all of a sudden your arm is tight, it's either your phone is too heavy, it's probably an Android, or you actually have seen the caller ID and it's giving you a message that says, hey, you need to have stress. So the breath break is really simple because when we can identify that our body is tight and you're not lifting weights, you're having a stress moment. First step, check the floor. If you don't have any of your major body parts on the floor, then probably there's no real good reason for you to have these stress chemicals. It doesn't need fight or flight, that sympathetic nervous response. If there are body parts there, call 911, that's a problem. It's probably Check a break also. Right. Check the floor. Number two, rub your hands together. Kind of gets the energy flowing. And then with your neck a little bit down, breathe in and pull up. Like you're pulling up light. Imagine the air is like a light flowing through you all the way to the top. Hold that. Two, three. And then breathe out through your mouth. Relax your shoulder, your chest, at the ends of the breath. Push out a little bit more. So it's like a wave. You're breathing up. And blowing out, up and down. But don't just breathe in air. We ask the kids for kids kicking cancer in a hero circle. What do you breathe in? They yell out the light. And what do you breathe out? The darkness. And we all have darkness. The ability to actually feel this light from a Kodesh Baruch who fill you up, that energy, and then to blow out the darkness of pain, fear, and anger, you actually are telling your adrenal gland, nobody's running after you to kill you. You stop stress chemicals. It's that easy. Using your breath to relax your body. Then there are two words in Korean we teach people to say. My own black belt is in Korean martial art. The two words are Baruch Hashem. It's not really Korean. One of the big Hollywood actors had a problem with his back. I was teaching him how to do it. So I told him the two Korean words, Baruch Hashem. He's not Jewish. So in the Korean restaurant down the block, they're all going Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. But it really spread because Kim Jong-uno, the guy, the lunatic in North Korea, after the last ballistic missile, he turned to his John and he goes, Baruch Hashem. But so it's made the rounds. But Baruch Hashem, the Rashpur says, what does that mean? Baruch like a brecha, a channel, a flow, a pool. It's flowing through me. When we realize that everything in our life is an opportunity and we could use the light from HaKadosh Baruch Hu and blow out the darkness, we change the world around us. That's the ability to bring in that power, create that peace. And here's the purpose. You become a teacher to others. And I'm going to give you at the end our website, because you can thank the kids of Kids Kicking Cancer. When they know they have a purpose, they actually have less pain. And we've evidenced that with functional MRIs. We see the changes in their brain. But anybody can do this. To breathe in the light 
and to blow out the darkness and to say that Baruch Hashem is a purpose that will illuminate the planet. And Be'ezat Hashem, share it, live it, breathe it. You don't need a mask to breathe in the light. But when you do, the darkness changes in the world. So when you're sitting at the Seder, whether it's yourself and your spouse or your children, we're all alone. Remember, you're never all alone. Remember that, yes, the stressors are natural and understandable, and you need to be aware of them. But ultimately, the ability to breathe in that light and to blow out that darkness gives you purpose. And at this Seder, as we all sit with the Shekhinah Hashem, who's telling us right now, I have also been very lonely. We can sing together the Shira Chadosha, the Geula song. And Nirzah should be acceptable in Shamayim. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu calls all the Tzvokot HaShamayim, all the hosts of heaven, to hear the song of the Jewish people as we have a chance to re-embrace HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Because that's optimism. It's not that everything is going to be great. It means we can respond to everything with greatness. This is the call of the moment, and that we refer to as power, peace, purpose. Very powerful, Rabbi Goldberg. People who are moved, um, how can they find you online, and how can they thank those kids? Kidskickingcancer.org, just go on our website. Plenty of opportunities. We have some meditations there. We are pushing out videos for and media for children who might be anxious now in general, beyond children who are sick, teaching them how to have this empowerment. But just remember, there isn't one person sitting there in the audience who is not a teacher. Take this moment. This is your moment to teach what real faith means to teach the vision, no matter where we are, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is with us. And when we feel those moments of tightness, bring in the light, and you don't have to use your hand sometimes, adults get you know hung up with that, kids love it. But wherever you are, just to breathe in the light and blow out the darkness. And don't forget your Korean, Baruch Hashem, because we are that Brecha. We are that channel for HaKadosh Baruch Hu in this world. And when we open up with greatness, we let HaKadosh Baruch Hu in. And God willing, we'll enjoy that embrace because it will be the embrace that accompanies Mashiach Tzidkenu. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time. My great pleasure. Thank you for listening. This is OU Live. My name is Rabbi David Pardo. We've had a very powerful episode, a lot of guests and a lot of takeaways. There are uh, vulnerable people in your, in your network. Um, maybe you are one of them. Um, perhaps we're all vulnerable in ways that we uh, don't even give ourselves credit for. Um, I want to take the opportunity to remind people who, um, 
who are themselves vulnerable to make sure to look up before Chag the number for the National Suicide Hotline um, and make sure to take care of yourself. Make sure to be in conversation with a rabbi um, about the necessity of, uh, of taking pikuach nefesh life-saving measures if necessary. Um, a, a tshuva is being circulated by Rav Herschel Shachter. To that effect, you should speak with your local Orthodox rabbi. Um, if you don't have a local Orthodox rabbi, um, email, you can email me. What the heck, pardo.ou.org. I'm happy to connect you or, um, you know, I'm happy to listen. Um, if you are taking these measures, make sure you speak with someone before Yom Tov. Uh, make sure they're there and uh, ready to, to pick up the phone if you need that. And make sure to have a not just a Chag Kasher, but really a Chag Sameach, from my family to yours.